Amen. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's where we're going to begin. We're going to be in several different places this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series on training day. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I was working on a completely different message this week. And uh, the Lord kind of directed me in a different way, in a different place, and kind of went in about four or five different directions until this morning, and God said, here's where you're at. And, uh, and I was like, that's fine, whatever you want, as long as you promise not to leave me while I'm up there. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about training the next generation of Christians, and there are some things that come out of this, some things that we need to think about, and, and really it came from the funeral that I did yesterday, in a lot of ways, God spoke to me while I was doing that funeral, and it was really a matter of what are we leaving behind? When our generation is gone, what will be left behind in the church? Will it have a leg to stand on? Will it continue to move forward? Will the gospel continue to be carried on? And, and if so, what are we doing to help promote that? What are we doing to help push it? What are we helping what are we helping to do to make sure that that next generation keeps carrying on the message? What kind of an example can we set? And that's where I came up with a few questions, and it's simply this. What are you teaching? What are you teaching? What are you, what are you speaking into other people? Now, here's the truth. The matter is, every time you talk, you're teaching a valuable lesson. The question is whether it's right or wrong. When we speak, people are listening. And so what are you teaching? What, are, what example are you setting? Whether you want to believe it or not, people are watching everything you're doing. I always loved it with, you know, your kids are always watching, aren't they? Because your kids can tell you everything you did wrong. They, they can remember every mistake you made. And, uh, and that's the thing. They're always watching. And the truth is, is it's okay to make mistakes. It's what are you going to do after you get up after the mistakes? What are you going to do in order to correct the mistakes. So what example are you setting and who are you training? Who are you prepping in this next generation? Once this generation is gone, what's the next church going to look like? What are the next leaders going to be like? Are we going to keep seeing a trend going downhill or are we going to see a trend where people get on fire for Jesus and begin to proclaim the gospel everywhere they go? So this morning I want to talk about four things that we need to be teaching to that next generation. Four things that need to be adamant in our own lives so that we're setting the example for that next generation. The first thing I want us to see is that we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Look with me in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. We've got to get to a point where we keep the main thing the main thing. The problem is, is today we're seeing more and more creep into the church that is false doctrine. Titus chapter 1 and verse 11 says, Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses. The truth is, is we must be prepared for false teachers that are creeping in and teaching things that are unbiblical, and we need to decry and declare they're unbiblical. The Bible tells us in Acts 20 and verse 30 that savage wolves will creep in amongst us, and that has happened, and I'm here to tell you it's happened within our own convention. 
And we've got to be careful because we need to keep the main thing the main thing. The problem is, is we keep chasing all these other things that are unimportant. Now, you might say, well, brother, you, you're preaching on Sunday night. You're going through doctrine and theology. What are you saying? I'm saying, well, you know what? We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. But we always need to stand upon the Word of God because that's the only text that we have as Christians. That's the only thing we should adhere to. And so when we keep the main thing the main thing, that means the gospel is first and foremost. What we're finding today is there are a lot of doctrines that are creeping into the church that for some reason they're taking the forefront of our conversations. We're chasing rabbits down holes that are unnecessary and foolish. One of those said doctrines that's coming across today, and maybe you've heard about it, is critical race theory. It's created by an intellectualism. Back in 1989 is when it began. And what it is, the idea and the theory is simply this. This is what racial inequality emerges from the social, economic, and legal differences that white people create between races to maintain elite white interests in labor markets and politics, giving rise to poverty and criminality in many minority communities. Let me just put it to you this way. If you have to add a color to anything, you're a racist. That's plain and simple. Until we stop seeing things in black and white and red and yellow and realize that God loves us all for who we are, no matter what our color is. I love what Toby Mac said in one of his songs. It's a skin kaleidoscope, and it's something that God's created, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's not about race. Now, I understand. Please understand. I know that racism is real. I know it's real. But when we begin to focus so much on that and we begin to focus on all these other doctrines and we do it to the the negativity of the gospel, we have lost sight of who we are. We're no longer keeping the main thing the main thing. In 2019, during the Birmingham Convention of FCBC, they passed a resolution that said we slightly agree with critical race theory. How do you slightly agree with something? Here's what the Baptist conservative Network, the 1979 Resurgence Group, said they put it in a document, said they'll tell you everything you need to know about critical race theory. He said, long story short, employing a bit of critical race theory for analytic purposes is like claiming you're a little bit pregnant. He said, in other words, you're all in from the moment of conception so far as conservative opposition is concerned. Once you start seeing racism in the structure of worldly power relations, you've slid down the slippery slope into feminism, LGBTQ rights, socialism, climate control. In other words, you're full-blown woke. Let me tell you what I'm woke to. I am sick of the things that are going on today. I am sick of what's happening in our communities. I am sick of racism. I'm sick of socialism. I'm sick of people declaring these things and saying we need to be woke. No, here's what you need to be woke to. You need Jesus and that's it. Man, if we'll get away, the church needs to focus on what the church needs to focus on and that is telling people about Jesus. I'm here to tell you that's going to be beautiful in heaven one day, don't you think? Because it's going to be of every generation and every tribe and every nation. They're going to be all up there in heaven and we're going to worship together. And guess what? There's not going to be different neighborhoods. We're going to all live together. And here's the thing. If you don't think you can live together down here, don't plan on going up there then. The truth of the matter is, is we've got to get to a point where we keep the main thing, the main thing. 
The problem is, is so often we focus on so many doctrines, and not just Southern Baptists, but it's all denominations. There's a doctrine that was going around, and it's still, it goes around for a long time. And, and I don't have a problem with people who believe it. I disagree with it, but I don't have a problem with Calvinism. All right? I don't have a problem with people who believe it. Why? Here's the thing. As long as you're out there sharing the gospel, then let's go share the gospel. What I do have a problem with, I had a good friend of mine. They would go into coffee houses, and they would talk about Calvinism for two and three hours with all these people sitting around them talking about who God chose and who God didn't choose. Let me tell you something. I don't know what God's up to. What I do know is he died for the whosoever. He died for the world, not just a chosen few. He died to change this world, and it's time we start sharing the gospel. It's time we tell people about Jesus, and we leave the rest of it up to God. We've got to make the main thing the main thing. We've got to stop stepping into things that really don't matter and make a difference. Do I believe that in doctrine and theology is important? I wouldn't be teaching you on Sunday night if I didn't believe it. But let me tell you something. When we get away from the gospel, when we begin to heed fables and endless genealogies that only bring up more and more questions, I'm telling you what's going on in the world is they need to see Christians who believe what Jesus has done for the world, and they need to see Christians that believe that Jesus is still the only answer for the world. It doesn't come from another doctrine. It doesn't come from another theology. It comes from Jesus and him alone. We've got to get back to the main thing being the main thing. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul made it clear exactly what he meant by making the main thing the main thing. In Galatians 1, chapter, uh, verses 8 and 9, he says, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if any man preaches any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. Let's get back to the gospel. Let me tell you what this world needs. This world needs hope. They need Christians to bring hope into the world again. The problem is, is we got too many Christians that are too worried about a virus instead of worried about whether people are going to hell. I mean, when you think about this, think about it for a moment. Do I believe the virus is real? I do. Okay, please understand, I do. But let me tell you something. If I contract the virus while I'm sharing the gospel, then praise God, I'm ready to go. I just want to make sure that people know Jesus. I want to get back to the main thing. I want to get back to what God created me to be. I want to get back to who God created me to be. I want to do the things that God is calling me to do. And it's time for us to get back to the main thing. Can I tell you something? We have seen a dive in denominational baptisms. They talked about that. We're at our lowest numbers that we've ever seen in the SBC. You want to know why? Because we've gotten away from the gospel. Because we've gotten away from the importance of going out there. And here's the thing. It's not going to take churches doing it. It's going to take individuals doing it. It's time that we stop thinking that we have to have. I love VBS, but let me tell you something. If you think VBS is the only way we're sharing the gospel, you're fooling yourselves. The truth of the matter is, is it's got to be every one of us, every single day, telling people about Jesus. That's simple. We've got to get back to the main thing being the main thing. I love what he says, that they teach no other doctrine. Let me tell you something. If you have never believed it before, I hope you'll believe it today. Jesus is enough. He is enough. We've got to get back to keeping the main thing, the main thing. Number two, we do not need to neglect our gifts. Look at me in 1 Timothy 4, verses 14 and 15. 
It says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbyter. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that they profiting may appear to all. Neglect not the gift. Timothy had several gifts. Timothy had the gift of evangelism, the gift of pastoring and teaching, the gift of prophecy. There are many gifts that Timothy had, and a lot of people look at him and say, well, you know, he was, he was a pastor, and so he had to have gifts. Let me tell you something. If you think the pastor is the only one in the church with gifts, you're fooling yourself. If you think that you have to be called into ministry to have a gift, you're fooling yourself. The truth of the matter is the Bible teaches very clearly the moment you got saved, you received spiritual gifts. Now, here's the thing. It's up to you to figure out what those are. You say, well, I don't know what I have. I don't know what God has called me to do. Well, then don't you think it's about time you figure it out? The problem is, is God is sick and tired. And let me tell you something. The next generation is going to be the same way. If you become a couch potato Christian, what do you expect the next generation to become? If you're so busy sitting on the pew, and I promise you, God is not interested in pew warmers. He's interested in warm bodies that want to serve and glorify his name. God wants you to know what your gift is and use it for his glory and his honor. There are people out there neglecting their gifts. And here Paul says, neglect not the gift that is in thee. Figure out what that gift is. Know what God is calling you to do. You say, well, what are they? Well, you go to Romans chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. You find that prophecy and teaching and leading and giving and administration and all these are gifts. Then you go to 1 Corinthians 12, and you can read there verses 7 to 11. And it gives a list more of gifts of faith and knowledge and wisdom and all these other gifts. And the truth of the matter is, is you've been gifted with something. Now it's time to serve. Can I tell you what happens to the church when people stop serving? How many of you would like to drive a car with three wheels? Anybody want to leave out of here? I'll take one of your wheels and we'll see how you get home. It's not going to happen, right? One side of the car is going to fall over and you're going to be scraping it all the way home. It's kind of like that. It's also kind of like trying to sit on a two-legged chair. You never can put all your weight on it, can you? The problem is, is when the body is suffering because people aren't using their gifts and people aren't serving within the church and somebody goes, well, brother... I've served my time. If you have, it's been nice knowing y'all be doing your funeral next. If you think you've served your time, here's the thing. God is going to take you when it's your time. And until you breathe that last breath, serve him. Give all that you have to him. Because look at what it says here in verse 15. He says this, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. Have you ever put yourself completely into something? Have you ever been all in, wholly in? You think about that, what that means. That means if God has given you a gift, you put everything you have, all effort, all of your... And here's the truth. When you give 100%, God's the one who will give you the extra to give 110. God will use you when you're ready to be used. But I promise you, if you want to sit on the sideline, he's got vessels he puts on the shelf. You read 2 Timothy, he has vessels that are made for dishonor and they sit on a shelf. I don't want to be a shelved item. I want to be a pot in the master's hands. I want him to keep molding me, keep using me, keep directing me, keep filling me. I want to be used by God until I finally breathe my last breath. That's what I want to do. Man, get wholly involved in it. I love that word when he's talking about there. He says, give your absolute best. Here's the truth of the matter. There's never enough workers in the church. Do you know that? There's never enough workers. Now, here's the thing. 
If everybody did their job, guess what? We could start, we could do David's favorite thing. We could start new ministries. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I want to start new ministries. Because the more ministries we start, it shows that more people are getting involved, more people are serving, more people are using their gifts. And guess what? God's getting ready to take off. That's what it's all about. But it's about getting you plugged in. It's about not neglecting the gift. The problem is there's so many of us. I love that they put a little sand pit up here. They were afraid I was going to step in it. But I love this because here we go. We've got our gift. And so often what people will do with their gift is they'll take it and they'll bury it. They'll do just like the guy in the parable where he took his gift, he took his talent, and he buried it. And then when the master came and he came to collect, he said, what do you have for me? And he goes, here, I have your gift. I have what you gave to me. I have everything that you gave to me and nothing more. I did because I knew you were a shrewd man. And he goes, you vile and defiled sinner. In other words, don't bury what God has given to you. Use it for his glory and his honor. Do not neglect the gift. You say, well, what does that mean for future generations? Well, if us as adults begin to neglect the gifts, how are we going to train the next generation to use theirs? How are we going to guide them and tell them it's important for them to use what God has given to them if we won't even use what God has given to us? If we're going to train up the next generation, we got to set the example. Number three, we need not be ashamed of Jesus Look at me in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. Do not be ashamed of Jesus. He says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but thou a partaker of afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. You know, the, most, the, most, the harshest words I believe a parent could ever say to a child is this, I'm ashamed of you. Wouldn't you agree? Your parents could spank you a hundred times before they ever say that, right? I'm ashamed. Now, you think about that for a moment. Why is it that that would hurt us so bad? You'd say, well, I don't care what my parents... No, that's not true. Or you wouldn't be talking about it or thinking about it right now. The truth of the matter is, is when we become ashamed of something, what we're saying is, is it's not important. And if we become ashamed of Jesus, we're saying to the world, he's not important. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. In other words, the idea in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul said, don't let us be ashamed of the gospel. Can I tell you who's ashamed of the gospel? Those that don't share it. You realize that 90% of evangelical Christians, it says, never share the gospel. Can I tell you something? If you've never shared the gospel, what you tell me is you're ashamed of it. You're ashamed of the good news. Now, none of us would ever say that, especially if I asked you about your grandkids. You'd probably roll out that Rolodex on your wallet that have all them pictures out there, or you'd pull out your phone, and you'd be flipping through. You've got a whole album on there, your grandkids. You would never be ashamed of them. You want to show them off. Why would we be ashamed of the gospel? Why would we be ashamed of the greatest news that has ever been given to mankind? We need to understand that like Ezekiel, when God calls out, he says, I'm looking for a man to stand in the gap. He's looking for people today to stand in the gap and tell others about him. You realize the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, that if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. But if you deny me before men, 
I will deny you before my Father. I wonder how many supposed Christians will stand before God one day and he will say, depart from me for I never knew you. And it all stems from the fact that they're ashamed of what Jesus has done for them. Let me tell you how unafraid and unashamed Paul was. Paul was willing to preach the gospel message and be thrown into prison. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, I love the story with the Philippian jailer. They throw him in prison and they lock him up and they bind him and they catch him singing hymns and praises to God. Hymns and praises unto God. He's unashamed. He's not afraid. He knows what could be coming. In fact, when he knows that he's about to die, if you read the end of 2 Timothy, he knows death is coming to him. He knows that they're about to behead him. And you know what he says? He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, but I've run the race. I've kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. And here's the thing. I hope that when you get to the end of your life, those words can be said about you. I've kept the faith. I've run the race and I fought the good fight. Can those be said about you? Well, I wonder. The question is, are you ashamed of the gospel? Paul was willing to go through so much more than just being in prison. In fact, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us a lot of Paul's journey. Beginning in verse 23, it says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. What would ever possess a man to be willing to go through all of that? Simply this. He was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even when they were about to take his life, he still wouldn't step down. One of my favorite stories about a great church historical theologian, older gentleman in his late 80s, was being tied up to be burned for his faith. The people in that community loved him so much, and the officers that were having to bind him up and put him in the fire respected him. And so they told him, they said, look, they said, if, it, if at any time, because of his age, they said, at any time, you, uh, you just, you declare that you don't, we'll, we'll put out the fire and we'll bring you down. And they said, and if you get to a point where you, you can't even speak, if you'll just hold up a hand, we'll know that that's your denial and we'll accept it and we'll put out the fire and we'll bring you down or we'll make it easier on you. As soon as the fire was started, the older gentleman did this, stuck both hands in the fire. And he said, I will not deny my Lord. Let me tell you something. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. We live in a day and, world, a day and age and, and a world where they want you to be ashamed of what Jesus has done. They want you to, to believe that because he has an exclusive club, as they call it, that we're not inclusive. Can I tell you why we're not inclusive? I'll give you a real simple and straightforward answer of why we're not inclusive with other religions. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's why it's exclusive. But here's the thing. It is inclusive because every man, woman, and child can come 
come and go to heaven through Jesus Christ. He died for every single one of them, Muslims, Buddhists, and any other religion that's out there. Jesus Christ died for the entirety of the world that they all might be saved. And we should not be ashamed to believe that Jesus is the only way. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Because I'm here to tell you, when you become ashamed of the gospel, they're watching. When we become ashamed of the truth, they're watching. The world wants to see us deny and turn away. They're watching. Finally, the last thing we need to do in order to raise up the next generation is be ready in season and out of season. Look at me in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Many of you would look at that and say, I'm not called to preach. Well, let me tell you what the word preach means. It means proclaim it. You ought to be a proclaimer of the word. You ought to be one that can proclaim the word of God. That's why we're teaching you. Our goal, uh, my goal as a pastor is to teach you. It's to train you up. My main goal as a pastor is to prepare you to do the work of the ministry. If all the ministry fell on me, we'd be in grave trouble. The choice is, is you've got to be a part of that great ministry that God has called you to be a part of. We've got to be ready. You've got to be ready to preach the word. And some of y'all would say, I just, I can't do it. I can't preach the word. Let me tell you something. The Bible makes it very clear in, in the book of Hebrews chapter 5. He says, you ought to be teachers by now. I wonder how many he'd say that to you today. You ought to be teachers by now. You say, well, Brother John, I, I don't like to read. That's okay. I don't like to read either, but I'm definitely going to pick this book up and read it. I'm not a big fan of reading. Trust me, when I was in school, the only thing I read was comic books. I didn't even read textbooks. That's why I didn't make such good grades. But you think about it. We've got to be ready to preach the word. The only way to preach the word is to know the word. The only way to know the word is to be absorbed in the word. The only way to be absorbed in the word is put your life in the word. It's to constantly be filled up with the word of God so that it begins to pour out of you. I love what they said about Charles Spurgeon. He was so biblical that he would bleed the Bible. Cut him and he would bleed the Bible. Preach the word. And he says, be ready in season and out of season. Let me tell you something. It's not always convenient. The word be ready is, comes from the word epistemi, which means urgency and preparedness. It's a soldier who's ready for battle. Let me tell you something. If you don't believe that we're not in a battle right now, you're fooling yourselves. We're in a battle for this world. And it's not just in America. They're going over in Israel right now as well. There's a big battle that's going on. Liberalism is dominating our country, and it is dominating the world. And if conservatives don't start standing up on their morals and on the truths of God's Word, we're going to lose this country. I'm not ready to lose it just yet. There's too many men and women that fought and gave their lives for this country. I'm not going to lose it to the liberals and allow them to keep defying the Word of God and turning things around and changing this community. We stand on God's Word, which our country was founded on. But we've got to be ready. That's not just preachers. That's all of us. Be ready in season and out of season. That means you need to know 1 Peter chapter 3 says you ought to be able to give a defense of why you believe what you believe. Can you give a defense for why you believe in Jesus? Can you explain to people why you gave your life to him? I hope you can because I can. I can tell you I was lost and miserable and destitute and without any hope until I found Jesus. 
I had nothing to live for. I was messing up my life. I was living in sin until God came and set me free. My destination was hell, but it is no longer that destination for me. And I praise God that he changed my life, and I hope he's changed yours. And let me tell you something. If you're not ready to share that truth with others in this world, then you will never be ready. Be ready in season and out of season. And get this, he says, reprove and rebuke. Let's just be honest. Nobody likes to be rebuked. Nobody likes the negative. But let's be honest. The Bible makes it very clear that there's a lot of negative things in this world that need to be stood upon and stood against. You think about that. If we don't stand against the atrocities that are going on in our country and we don't stand on the truths of the word of God, then what are we here for? What are we here for? We need to be willing to reprove and rebuke. And you say, well, how do you reprove and rebuke a world that is going down the toilet? Because that's the simple way of putting it. Well, it's real simple. You stand on the truths of God's word. Let me tell you something. This world may change, but this word will not. God's word is the same, and it always will be the same. If it was a sin back then, it is a sin today. God has not changed. He will never change, and he doesn't need to change because you don't change something that's perfect. Be ready. Reprove and rebuke. And then he says exhort. In other words, you ought to encourage. There's some positive things. There are things we ought to be doing in the right direction. But then he says, do it with patience and long-suffering. Let me tell you something. That's one of the hardest things because we're not very patient people, are we? But here's what he's saying. He's saying, think towards the end game. Don't think about that moment right then and there. Think towards the end. In other words, you think about this. When you share the gospel with somebody, a lot of times they don't get saved immediately. But the end game is you keep praying that it will happen before they breathe their last breath. You wait patiently praying for them that God will change their heart and their life. And you just keep praying and you keep working towards that end. And that's what he's saying here. In order to change the world, let me tell you something. The old statement is Rome wasn't built in a day and it wasn't destroyed in one either. And America wasn't built in a day and it hasn't been going down the tube for one day either. It's going to take a while to get it back on the right track. But it's going to take you and me and all the Christians in this world standing up on the truths of God and being willing to be serious about what we believe in and not giving up on our country. I'm not giving up on America. I don't care who they put in office. I'm not giving up on America. I don't care what they keep tearing apart. I'm not giving up on America. I don't care if they start persecuting the churches and it's probably coming. I'm not giving up on America. We're going to stand and we're going to stand strong. Why? Because we're going to be ready in season and out of season even if it means we're going to have to suffer for it. I want to leave the next generation an example. I want to live in such a way that young men and young women say, I want to live like that. I want to be unashamed of the gospel. I want to be ready to preach it wherever I go. I want to be willing to tell it wherever I'm at. I want to make sure I keep the main thing the main thing. That's what we've got to do for this next generation. Because if we don't, can you imagine where the church would be? I've often said this as I talk about discipleship. Could you imagine if the early disciples discipled like you and me? Where would the church be today? If they did it differently, then shouldn't we be doing it differently? We've got to make some changes. 
And we've got to prepare this next generation. And here's the thing. We can prepare them until our very last breath. But we need to be training up that next generation so that they're living like Christ and they don't fall for the things of this world. Can I tell you, here's the greatest problem that's going on today. The younger generation is believing all the mess that's being put out on the media. Not all of them, but a vast majority of them. They're beginning to believe the mess that the media continues to put out. And let me tell you something. As long as they keep believing the mess that's being put out by the media, they will turn away from this book. And if they turn away from this book, woe be unto that next generation. What are you doing to train them up? What are you leaving behind? What legacy are you making for the future? Are you making a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or have you just said, it's all, it's done, I'm done, I'm finished. We've got to pick it up. We've got to pick it up, and we've got to start taking it one day at a time. There's a verse of scripture that speaks to me often. Paul says, we should be redeeming the time. Stop wasting time your life and start preparing the next generation to make a difference in this world. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you that we can redeem the time. God, I thank you that